From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Vice President Kamala Harris will be in Savannah today. Her frequent trips to the state make it clear how important the Biden campaign believes Georgia will be in the November election. We'll talk to Chatham County State Senator Derek Mallow about the vice president's visit. I'm Patricia Murphy. Joe Biden was president and had control of the Senate and the House from 2020 to 2022 and did absolutely nothing on this issue. Governor Kemp is blaming Democrats for failing to secure the southern border, even though Republican leaders have pulled the plug on a compromise to do just that. I'm Bill Nygut. Two more Trump election conspiracy defendants have joined the legal effort to have Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis removed from the case. We'll look at their arguments for dismissing Willis. Plus, lawmakers gathered in Columbus for a memorial service for State Representative Richard Smith, who they say was a powerful but benevolent leader in the state legislature. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia, setting the stakes in the agenda for Georgia politics. I'm Greg Bluestein here in the WABE studio in Atlanta with Patricia Murphy and Bill Nygut. Guys, good to see you in person. Well, it's great to see you in person, Greg. I feel like I see you in many states elsewhere, but now (laughs) finally IRL. (laughs) I was in Columbus yesterday, so I missed the show, Bill, but I'm glad you, you you know, you always hold down the fort. I, I do my best. But I always love it when there are other people in the studio. You know, there are days when Tia's on in Washington. I'm here. You guys are doing other things. So here we are together. I like that. (laughs) We have a packed show for you guys today. Vice President Kamala Harris visits Savannah today. Georgia has been a frequent destination for the vice president. And today she'll be there in a stop on what the Biden campaign is calling the Fight for Reproductive Freedoms Tour. The visit highlights how important the campaign believes abortion rights is this election and how vital they believe Georgia will be in November. Joining us now to talk about the vice president's visit is the state senator from Savannah, Derek Mallow. Thanks, Senator, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Greg and team. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you all this morning. Yeah, well, let's get right to it, Senator, because this is fascinating to me. This is the vice president's 11th visit since she took office to Georgia, but it's the third in just the third to Georgia in just two months. And First Lady Joe Biden is here tomorrow. What do all these visits tell you about Georgia's importance going into uh, going into November? Well, I think it underscores what we've talked about in the 2020 election is that Georgia is a major player uh, in national politics, not only state politics. And so we sent two U.S. senators to the White House, along with Vice President Harris and President Joe Biden. And that lets you know that communities like mine in the city of Savannah, where we've oftentimes been uh, forgotten about outside of the Atlanta beltway of politics, that uh, we do have a large electorate. And if they show up, it can determine an election. If you're talking about winning with 11,000 voters uh, in the state of Georgia, uh, between uh, coastal Georgia and southeast Georgia, you can find 11,000 Democratic voters that could show up. Savannah Mayor Van Johnson likes to say that 
Savannah is no longer the uh, the pimple on Atlanta's backside, Bill. <laughs> Senator is Bill Nygut. Um, thanks for being here. Um, I'm, you know, I, I think I'm correct that in 2020, I went back and tried to look at election data. Uh, Chatham County gave uh, Joe Biden something like 58, 59 percent of the vote. Um, as as the 2024 election approaches, a lot of us are looking and asking questions about whether President Biden can rebuild the same coalition that put him in the White House in 2020. Clearly, uh, that means uh, black voters have to come out for him in strength. And yet we've seen some suggestion that black voters may not be quite as enthusiastic as they were in 2020. What's your take in Chatham County? Well, you know, as a black voter, number one, and secondly, a black male voter, understanding that black folks are not monolithic, um, that we will vote based off issues and substance. Um, we don't vote just because the wind is blowing, but we're also an oppressed and marginalized group of people that has uh, fought, fought for the right to vote uh, since we got here. And so that right is sacred. Uh, that right means that we will disagree on policy and certain position points, but that does not mean we will not show up to vote. Um, that is a myth. Um, and so when people say that, it is to create, in my opinion, a narrative so folks buy into it to stay home because they will feel, oh, that's what everybody else is doing. But what black folks will do and have continued to do is to show up and to vote off the issues that are going to advance our community and move us forward. And I think in Savannah, Black voters are going to do that because there is not a clear comparison uh, for us. Uh, we are not Trump supporters and Trump voters. Um, he may see persecution in his mind in the criminal justice system, but my folks have been talking about injustices in the criminal justice system uh, since it was created. Uh, so we don't quite sympathize with what he may feel he's experiencing. We want you to follow the law and uh, do what everybody else has had to do. Senator, we're hearing from the White House uh, all the positive economic data that they're seeing um, when they look at the top lines. But I think when we talk to voters, uh, we're hearing a different story, that it's not in all cases coming down to the lives that they're living, particularly when it comes to interest rates, um, wages, costs of things. Tell us a little bit about what you're hearing um, from your constituents and your district about how they're feeling about the economy. And is there anything the White House, not just should they say something different, should they do something different? Yeah, the White House should brag different. Uh, they are doing a terrible job about bragging. President Biden, uh, lowest unemployment numbers, record job performance, inflation coming down. 53% of inflation over the last two quarters from the previous year were based off of corporate greed. You got to brag different. You got to tell folks what's happening so that they'll know uh, it's no way the companies are posting record profits, yet the employees and the workforce haven't seen a raise. The, the, the two don't go together. And so sometimes President Biden, in my opinion, is being blamed because he's not bragging well enough. Um, and they really should do a better job telling the story of what's actually happening. Um, because when I'm looking at the reports and the numbers and what were happening, I also see Governor Kemp taking credit uh, for, for Biden money, uh, for Inflation Reduction Act money, uh, for American Rescue Plan money. Uh, those weren't Kemp coins. Those were Biden bucks. <laughs> That's always been a challenge for Democrat Senator Derek Mallow, um, especially given last year or the midterms in 2022 when when Governor Kemp and, and other Republicans uh, went around the state talking about some of the influx in the budget that was at least partly attributed 
to that federal stimulus dollars and federal, just federal infusion of cash. But I want to ask you about something else that a vice president is coming into town to her, her main uh, focus here. This, this um, today is in Savannah is reproductive freedom and in, in there in, in her words, right? Abortion rights. Uh, and we've seen, we've seen abortion rights supporters around the nation pick up a string of victories, even in red States. Um, but in Georgia, of course it was an important issue for Stacey Abrams and for other Democrats. Uh, but in Georgia, we saw Democrats, uh, every Democrat but Stace, but but Senator Raphael Warnock lose in the 2022 uh, midterms in statewide elections. How how important do you think abortion rights will be to voters going into the November campaign? And, and how much of an issue will it be for Democrats to, to rally around? I think it's going to be a huge issue, Greg. And I think it's going to be an issue. Uh, that's one of the bedrock issues, because what we have uh, in Georgia with the abortion ban is that while folks may be indifferent on the time and the manner and, and all of the nuances related to abortion, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that people do not want the government in their health care decisions. That's it. That's bedrock. Uh, your body, your choice. You make that decision. Folks don't want anybody just coming in and telling them what they have to do. But at the same time, this is what I call a moral juxtaposition. You say uh, that you can't have an abortion in the state of Georgia, but here we are lagging in uh, motherhood mortality. Uh, here we are not expanding Medicaid. Uh, to me, that's double talk. That's doing one thing and saying another. Senator Governor Kemp was at the southern border over the weekend. We've heard quite a bit about him, from him about immigration, about this administration's um, approach to the southern border. Is that anything that your constituents bring up to you? Is that on anybody's radar in Savannah? You know, uh, we've actually talked about this, and I talked about this with several other members of the clergy. Uh, the Bible talks about looking out for the foreigner. Uh, because you were once a foreigner in Egypt coming out of uh, Leviticus 19 and 24. And so the idea of immigration, uh, everybody here is an immigrant. Last time I checked, uh, nobody other than the Native Americans are folks that are true and native to this land. So we are a country of immigration. Uh, and if you were serious about it, then you'd work on the bipartisan legislation to address the issue. Either you get serious about the job and roll your sleeves up and do the job, or you just talking to score political points when you really don't want to do nothing about it. And you saw this happen in Florida. Uh, they passed some of the uh, most stringent migrant laws in Florida, and they lost workforce. Folks said, hey, we're not going out picking oranges. We're not getting great. None of that. We're out of here. And so the idea that we can have an economy where we can use migrant labor when it's convenient, but give them a pathway to citizenship. Oh, that's too much right there. We can't do that. Senator, if I may, I'd like to turn uh, our attention to some matters at the legislature right now and get your take. Um, it, it, be, it appears, and you'll tell me if you think I'm incorrect, that um, vouchers have a, a bit more momentum uh, this time, this session, than they did last year. Governor Kemp didn't jump on board till the very end of the session last year. They're getting a lot more talk now. The governor is, now says he's in favor of vouchers. First of all, do you do you think there is momentum to pass them? And what do you personally want to do about vouchers? If there is momentum, it is what I would call political suicide. Uh, I think the worst thing you can do is get on the wrong side of teachers and educators. Um, and in fact, I, I would like to, you know, history would suggest that we learned that on the, the Democratic side uh, with a gubernatorial candidate as well. Um, and so uh, you get on the wrong side of teachers, especially in our rural communities. Vouchers, you, they, 
where does that even come up with when you have uh, the austerity grants for rural schools to help close the achievement gap where they don't have the tax base? Those are things we could do, not a voucher. Why? What are we talking about? And, you know, one of the issues for me, and I do not support school vouchers, and in the Constitution, and my folks in the Republican majority always talk about the Constitution. This would, when you pass the voucher bill, be the first opportunity that the veil between the separation of church and state will be pierced. And that will be done through a school voucher bill uh, because education is supposed to be free from religion, free from all these other things, except if it's a voucher. And so when you talk about freedom and you talk about what does that look like, uh, this will be the first time in a very long time that that veil in the Constitution will be pierced. I'm not a supporter. I hope it's defeated. We are here with State Senator Derek Mallow, a Democrat from Savannah, who served in both the House and now the Senate. And in both chambers, Senator, you've pushed the idea of legalizing sports betting. So what's your best bet on that issue's future? <clears throat> Since it now seems like it could require a constitutional amendment, do you guys have the votes to pass it? I think we do. I think the minority leader, Leader Gloria Butler uh, and Whip Harold Jones have worked tremendously, uh, along with myself, uh, Chairwoman Elena Parent and others in our caucus to um, address this issue of sports betting. And I remind my colleagues about sports betting so much. Yes, uh, you do see a a rise in gambling or gambling addictions that may occur. um, But introducing sports betting, we should have already set aside money to address that because that was the right thing to do. Um, I think now to say, well, because you're adding sports betting, this is why you have to do it. I'm reminding my colleagues of why we created the lottery, why it is there, what the lottery has done. And anyone who uh, is adamant that they do not like the lottery, ask them this question. Did your children take a Hope Scholarship or did you send the money back? Because I want to know if everyone is so ambiguous about the Hope Scholarship, who sent the money back? Senator, let's move on to Medicaid expansion. We know that um, this is something that Democrats have pushed for for a long time. There seems to be somewhat of a bit of momentum going forward, possibly to combine Medicaid expansion with overhauling hospital regulations in rural areas. How much of momentum is real on that? Um, Gloria Butler came out uh, talking about uh, maybe changing her position on certificate of need. Where do you see this going this session? There's not there's some time left, but not not loads and loads. Well, considering that we have $1.6 billion that was uh, set aside in the American Rescue Plan by Senators Raphael Warnock and Senator John Ossoff, $1.6 billion in incentives to get Georgia to fully expand Medicaid, uh, that's $1.6 billion that is just sitting that has already been allocated to the state of Georgia to expand Medicaid. Um, the Pathways Program is not successful. It's not turning out to be successful. And my grandmother would always tell me, don't chase good money after bad. Um, And so to continue to pursue a pathways program is chasing good money after bad. Uh, Sometimes you should just cut bait and abandon ship Uh, in the Democratic caucus. We are pushing Medicaid expansion and we're willing to recede our position on some of those regulatory burdens on rural Georgia. But we want to make sure that if you do open a hospital in rural Georgia, you don't bankrupt the nonprofit hospital that's already there um, without expanding Medicaid, because then you just suck all the good cash paying patients. And it's strange. It's a unique situation we're in right now, Senator Mallow, because uh, governor has not closed the door. He has not said publicly that whether he will support a Medicaid expansion or not. Of course, he's been critical of it for, for years now. 
But he did file that litigation on Friday, seeking an extension, uh, basically a three-year extension of the waiver program you just mentioned, the Pathways waiver program that so far has attracted about 3,000 or so uh, applicants. If it was a for-profit business and you rolled out a big plan and you only had 3,000 people enrolling before that, you had quadrupled the number, somebody's head would be rolling on today. You do something about it. And to do the same thing and expect different results is the definition of insanity. So I don't think it's fiscally conservative, economically responsible, or anything else to continue to chase a pathways program that's leading us on no pathway to nothing. Senator, I want to ask you a very broad question, please. Um, and, And it relates to a breaking news story that literally just crossed the wires. A federal appeals court in Washington has just rejected or just announced their rejection of former President Trump's claim that he was immune from charges of plotting to subvert the results of the 2020 election, meaning that the trial, the Washington trial, can go forward. So that gives us a chance to get that breaking news out this morning. But in general, how much do you believe Donald Trump has done to change the country's faith in our electoral system? And what kind of issue do you think it could be as people vote in 2024 in Georgia? I think um, he's done irreparable damage to democracy uh, because at no point in a lifetime have you ever seen someone stop the peaceful transfer of power. Um, And so we saw this when with the hanging chads in Florida with, with Al Gore. Um, you have to accept the re- results of the election and move forward because the American people have to have confidence in the elections and you cannot subvert the will of the people. But the idea is there's a fantasy from the former president uh, on a dictatorship is that the rules apply uh, for thee, but not for me. And so that is a dangerous place to be in. And as I watch other Republicans embrace that ideology to be the party of law and order and to say they support the rule of law. No, you only support the rule of law when it's convenient for you. You follow the law all the time, not some of the time. Uh, My dad used to say that's why lots keep honest people honest. And so if they're going to look at this and not realize there's a lock there for a reason and just say, well, do we really need a lock on the door? Uh, we could just let the former president come on back in. Um, hmm. So, Senator, let me ask you a follow-up. As a leader of your community, what do you do between now and November to reassure voters that the election will be honestly counted and that the outcome will be um, accurate and correct? Well, this is what I'll do, Bill. When I was uh, running for state house in 2020, five people in my race, I was in a a crowded primary and I came out of the primary and went went into a runoff election. I was the first hand recount in the state of Georgia, uh, myself and my good friend, uh, Representative Ann Allen Westbrook. And we went and did a hand recount and I got to see the tabulators, how to adjudicate. I got to see the, the ballots, how you handle them, how they batch them. And you know what? I found that that process was actually pretty good. When we did the hand recount, you know who messed up? The humans. (laughs) The numbers was everywhere. (laughs) And then we would go back and balance back to what the tabulator tabulated and then say something isn't right. And then we would find out that they were marking the wrong names. And so that's important. The machines can count. Human error. Anytime you allow humans to make a mistake, we will make a mistake. So I'm confident in the machines. I'm confident in the election. I'm confident in the process. And I think what we don't need to do, Bill, 
is change the rules of the game right now. Because if you change the rules and then it still don't work, then folks going to have even more distrust in the election system. And whose fault is that going to be? Sometimes you ought to leave well enough alone. Senator Derek Mello, we got to let you go uh, because I know you got to get back to legislature. But before you do, before we take a break, I do want to ask you about what conversations among Democrats and legislature and back home in Savannah are about District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Are there concerns about these allegations and misconduct? Um, There are I've even heard some Democrats call for either her or special uh, prosecutor Nathan Wade to step aside. What is your thoughts on on the, the situation she faces? First of all, whoever uh, the district attorney in Atlanta chooses to have a personal relationship with is her business. Uh, one thing you will learn about black folks and black voters is we don't get in folk personal business. It has no bearing on her ability to do her job and the job that she has done. The facts are the facts. It don't change the facts of the outcome of, of what's happened is he did it. They got an indictment that um, prosecutor, Mr. Wade, did a phenomenal job to get those indictments. Don't diminish the work because you want to put a smear campaign on me. But this is the same person that came out and said you can grab women um, and, 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 and the genitals. Like, I, I, what are you saying? What happened with that? Did we forget about that? Well, Senator, thank you so much for joining us. We would love to have you back. I know how busy you are. So we really appreciate your time. Man, I appreciate the invite. Y'all, I hope y'all invite me back. And hopefully I wasn't uh, too country for y'all this morning. But uh, <laughs> you great. Uh, I'm down on the coast. <laughs> you were great. Uh, when we come back, we're going to share the highlights of the interview that Patricia and I did with Governor Kemp just yesterday. And we'll be joined by Cody Hall, one of his top advisors. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletters. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com slash newsletters. We're now joined from afar by Cody Hall, one of Governor Brian Kemp's top advisors, who accompanied the governor down to the U.S. border in Texas this week. Cody, thanks for joining us. Hey guys, it's great to be with you. I saw, I think you had a 4 a.m. flight on, on Sunday. So I'm glad, (laughs) I'm glad you're still awake right now. A couple days later. Yes, it was a a long day, but it was worth it. So glad to be home. Well, Cody, I actually want to start with the interview that Patricia and I did with your boss, Governor Kemp on what many Democrats and Republicans agree is a, is a growing crisis at the U S border with Mexico. We asked the governor's thoughts on why Republicans are scuttling an immigration deal that Senate leaders have negotiated. Joe Biden was president and had control of the Senate and the House from 2020 to 2022 and did absolutely nothing on this issue. And regardless, you know, I'll I'll go back to my trip to Davos last year at the World Economic Forum when I was on a panel with Christine Sinema, Joe Manchin, and Chris Coons. Sinema was talking that she was working with a a bipartisan group. And I told them then on that panel, you know, I appreciate y'all working on bipartisan 
uh, you know, immigration reform. But while you're doing that, because nothing's happened in 20 years, you know, while you're doing that, just secure the damn border. And that's what President Biden could do. Cody, the governor's stance is essentially that Democrats have squandered their opportunity earlier in President Biden's term to strike a comprehensive bipartisan consensus-driven solution to the border. But isn't there a chance right now on the table that Republicans are now squandering? Well, I think it goes back to um, what the governor said. The first step is to secure the border. And the facts are that the president could do that today without congressional action. Um, Early on in his tenure in the White House, he reversed many of the executive orders that the Trump administration had put in place that had resulted in fewer crossings and a more secure border. Um, He has chosen not to reinstate those year over year. And, you know, a lot of the governors have been raising the alarm on this for years now. Um, Back in 2022, um, a group of Republican governors um, all signed a letter to President Biden laying out executive actions he could take immediately that would help the problem, end catch and release, um, and a number of other things that, again, the administration has not done. Now, obviously, a you know a bipartisan deal on this issue may or may not move forward, but I think the governor raises a great point. President Biden had two years to do anything on this issue, and he chose not to with a Democrat uh, Senate and House. So now, of course, they are trying to use Republican opposition to this deal as a way to shift blame, where, again, if the president wanted to, he could act today to secure the border. So, Cody, I've been talking to some immigration experts about what is going on at the border. Just looking at it, it's clearly a crisis. I don't think anybody debates that. Um, What I've been told, excuse me, is that uh, the executive orders that Donald Trump was able to use had to do with COVID, that it was a public health emergency and they were able to turn away migrants at the border on the basis of the fact that they could um, spread a communicable disease because there's no longer a public health crisis, that authority expired. Um, do you know what else the governors, specifically um, uh, the governor of Texas, what what they said Biden could do without legislation? Well, obviously, catch and release was one of them. Title 42 extending that was another. But I think to your point, um, I'm not a lawyer, but I know that given this administration's um, Willingness to craft very creative ways to try to forgive student loans using executive authority when no one thought that there was executive authority to do so, including um, the president at at one time. I think they could find a way (laughs) to declare a crisis at the border and use executive authority to address the issue. I just think that there's a lack of willingness to do so, which, again, has has been pretty evident over the last few years. But I want. What I will say is that the other thing they could do is stop trying to undermine what Texas is doing. Um, We flew down to Eagles Pass, Texas, and were able to see uh, Shelby Park, which is a a large space there right at the border that the um, ICE or, excuse me, the Customs and Border Patrol officials were using as a site to hold large numbers of immigrants in the thousands, three to 5,000 a day that were coming through just that one section of the border. And Texas took control of Shelby Park and refused to allow 
the border patrol officials to use that as a staging ground for illegal entry into the country for those thousands of immigrants. Now, of course, um, there's a court battle going over whether the federal officials can cut the concertina wire that, that Texas has erected, again, to try to stop people from entering. Because the interesting thing is, if you're in Shelby Park there, if you look up to your right, there is a port of entry, a legal port of entry into the country that people could utilize, but choose not to and go just a few yards away to try to enter illegally. So not only those executive actions that I think they could do, but they could also make a concerted effort not to undermine Texas and their efforts to secure their own border. Cody, um, I, I think that there are even many Democrats who would agree that President Biden, certainly early in, the, in his administration, did not focus as much as some would have wanted him to on the border. I, th- I think there's a lot of agreement uh, that he's picked up this issue a little bit late. But now that he has, um, I, I, I want to go back to the question that both Greg and Patricia were basically asking you, which is why not support uh, why not support this bipartisan effort, which gives Republicans virtually everything they've asked for in terms of cracking down on illegal entries into the country. And I, I'd add to that, although I know Republicans are saying that, that Biden can do a lot of this by executive order, I, I looked this up um, in, in preparation for our conversation 14 times that Donald Trump, President Trump, issued executive orders about the border on cracking down on illegal uh, immigration, he was overturned by federal courts. So there's that record that maybe counters what you're saying about how much any president can do to address this without congressional action. Yeah, and I think I I addressed a couple ways without, um, you know, a specific executive action that, that Biden could help the situation, obviously not to undermine Texas and their efforts. But um, to your point, there's, I don't know that Republicans have gotten everything that they want out of this deal in terms of border security. I think members of the House would say that there's a lot of things that they don't like in this, in this provision, including the amount of funds given to NGOs and sanctuary cities that have kind of perpetuated this um, incentive for people to cross into our country illegally. Um, But again, I I think anyone's um, assertion that Congress is finally going to move on a large bipartisan deal on illegal immigration with a very small Republican majority in the House and a divided Senate with a president in re-election I just don't put a lot of stock in that, regardless if the speaker was saying, yes, we'll bring the the bill up for a vote um, and the Senate was going to do the same. I just don't buy it. Um, I've watched Congress mess this issue up enough that I just don't have um, a whole lot of of stock in their ability to get anything done. And I think that's where a lot of the governors are, too. we are tired of the conversation around this because when you look at the fentanyl, the human trafficking, you know, there was a story in the AJC, I, I believe in the last day or two about how some of these migrant children, when they are brought into the state, could potentially fall into very dangerous uh, situations. And the numbers are only increasing. If you had doubts about the increased number of people coming into our country illegally, the AJC has reported that those minor children, the numbers are going up exponentially. And that's concerning for every state, not just Georgia. 
Yeah, and that story was about a potential red flag over <clears throat> migrant children staying with people who were not their relatives, which, which you know, there could be foster care, could be others, but but also is usually a red flag for for investigators. Cody, I wanted, I do want to ask you one more question on immigration before we switch subjects. Um, you are not just a strategist; you also help craft messages for, for for candidates, including Governor Kemp, last two election cycles. I want to read you something that Democratic State Senator Elena Parent wrote. She's one of the top Democrats in the Georgia Senate, of course, and she wrote this this morning of the governor's stance on immigration. This is, I'm I'm quoting her right now. You don't reject a solution to a problem because you want it as a campaign issue opposite of leadership. And now the Republicans own the problem of the border. We've heard that from other Democrats as well. Now that's saying with the collapse of this deal at former president, Donald Trump's urging, he's been urging the congressional Republicans to squeeze Joe Biden over immigration and and scuttle this deal. So you're already getting a glimpse of Democrats saying, hey, we tried to come up with with a solution. It's Republicans' fault. Uh, how do you respond? How, how, how do you advise candidates to respond to this on the Republican side? Well, as you know, I'm not usually in, in the business of defending things that Donald Trump says or, or wants to do. <laughs> <You're but, not>. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do think that it is a miscalculation to use the, this bipartisan deal as a as a pool in whether or not to move it based on how it helps Biden. If you don't want to vote for it, don't vote for it based on the policy that you don't like, not on the fact that it may or may not help the president um, in his reelection chances. Um, I think from any individual running for office, both state and federally, um, it's a matter of urgency based on a, a whole number of things. One of you know the gangs, human trafficking, the fentanyl that we've talked about. Um, and I think it, it really becomes a if you needed any other reason to believe that Congress and the federal government is is broken, just look at how this has unfolded. Hmm. And, and it's both parties. You had uh, President Obama never really did anything on this issue. President Trump, again, was not able to move anything through Congress. President Biden refused to do it in the years that he had unified control of Congress. He is now only really doing it in an election year. Because I think they realize that they have to muddy the water on this issue. They have to be able to blame Republicans for something, which is what you're seeing uh, Senator Parent speak to. They are trying to shift blame away from the executive to Republicans to try to make it a wash in terms of voters' perception over whose fault it is. Um, I think I would advise anybody that is not in Congress currently to point to the fact that this whole system is broken and we've got to have adults in the room that actually can get things done. Um, but first and foremost, you know, the president's repeated attempts to pass the buck on this issue and so many others is really starting to grate on the American people. Like he's the president, like stop making excuses, stop having your press secretary, blame it on MAGA Republicans. People want a leader. And that really is one of the reasons why I think you see Donald Trump performing so well in polls right now is because Biden is not seen as a strong leader. He is seen as weak, ineffective, probably too old. And this whole blaming Republicans instead of owning the issue and getting something done, I think that only um, really leans into his weaknesses as a candidate right now. So I would say for any Republican running, um, paint yourself as a strong leader who's going to do something or urge people to do something if you yourself are not in a position to do it. And obviously draw attention to the fact that the president's not. Cody, let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump since you brought him up. Um, What do you think is the lay of the land right now? You 
helped to run a campaign uh, where Brian Kemp won in 2022, um, just uh, two years after Donald Trump lost this state. Now it looks like we're going to have a Trump-Biden rematch unless something really unexpected happens. How do you see this thing going? And um, we know a lot of people close to Kemp have had warned off Republicans Donald Trump is dangerous on a general election ballot. Where do you see things going? Yeah, so I'll try not to be long winded here. Um, I think that Republicans are in danger of buying into a sugar high with a lot of these polls that are coming out. You know, the AJC poll um, last month had Trump up eight on Biden. I think a Fox News poll recently had something similar. The NBC News poll nationally was really bad again for President Biden. Um, I'll just take the AJC poll as an example. It had um, Biden support among African-American voters at 58%, I believe. There is no world in which an incumbent president of the Democratic Party gets 58% of the black vote in Georgia. Mm -hmm. That's just not going to happen. Now, I think what the poll did show is a lack of enthusiasm among African-American voters for President Biden. That's why you saw that low number. Look, Governor Kemp in 2018, I think, got around eight or nine percent of the black vote. He improved that to, I think, either 13 or 14 percent in the reelect in 2022. I'm biased, but I don't see a world in which a former President Trump outperforms Governor Kemp among black voters in a general election. So if you even take Biden getting 85, 86, 87 percent of black voters, that makes up a lot of that eight point gap he has in Georgia. Backing up a little bit, I don't think any nominee for any party for president gets less than 45 percent in Georgia. So you're arguing over the, that 10 percent in the middle. Cody, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say that I think the problems that Biden is seeing with young voters and black voters, they're largely going to be solved by the fact he is going to have vastly more money than uh, Trump will in a general election. He will be able to motivate those folks. It's going to be I think, an election on that middle 10 percent, because if the economy, as it looks like, starts to gradually improve, in my opinion, through no action of the president, but just because the American economy is very resilient, you have people start buying homes, interest rates come down, people start feeling better. I think that bodes ill for Trump in a general election, because I think that 10 percent in the middle, those uh, pocketbook swing voters start to at least feel better about their current situation and aren't as um, uh, disaffected with the current administration. Cody, um, it strikes me that you really set the table in a, in a particularly interesting way for what's going to happen in November. I, I want to go back to the border, but not in terms of an immigration issue, but rather an issue of constitutional law. Uh, I recognize you're not a constitutional lawyer. So Governor Kemp goes down to the border to support uh, Governor Abbott, who is um, uh, not responding. There's still legal actions over whether or not federal border patrol should be allowed into that particular area, should be allowed to cut the razor wire. And, and the wiggle room in that is that the Supreme Court ruling, which said the feds do have the authority to do this, is that they didn't direct Governor Abbott to do anything one way or the other. That's the wiggle room that he has. But here's what I want to know. If Governor Kemp, were to be involved in a suit in Georgia that went all the way to the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, and the court ruled against uh, the governor, uh, um, what, what would you advise? Would you suggest that a state, a governor, does have certain rights 
to not follow the orders of the United States Supreme Court? Because in many, many people would suggest that's exactly what Governor Abbott is doing in a very roundabout way. I don't necessarily agree with the premise that Governor Abbott is um, is flouting a decision by the Supreme Court. I think there's still some they send it back to a lower court. So we'll see how those those guys rule. But I think it comes back to. If you are the governor of Texas, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to allow hundreds of thousands of people to enter your state illegally every month? Are you supposed to just let these people come across into your communities that you don't know who they are, where they're going, or what their intentions may be? 169 people just last year crossed crossed the border illegally who were on the FBI terror watch list. 169 people. How many people were not caught? So I think for uh, Texas or any other border state, they're left in a horrible position that if they do nothing, their communities could be overrun by people that you have no idea who they are or what their intentions are. So the Supreme there are real you don't necessarily so the US Supreme Court isn't necessarily um setting law that must be followed by uh, the governor of the state. No, I think that a Supreme Court ruling uh, should be followed. Um but I think in this case, they've specifically not ruled on the overall merits of mm. what the governor and the president are really arguing over. Okay. Um, and they've sent that back to a lower court. So okay. we'll see how they eventually rule if it goes back to them. Cody, we got to take a quick break in a minute. But before we let you go, I want to do I want to ask a question about Medicaid expansion in Georgia. Um, we, we heard Senator Derek Mallow mention, um, you know, of course, Democrats and and a, a number of Republicans are now saying that they want to, ex- or at least they're open to the idea of expanding Medicaid. We still don't know exactly where your boss stands on on a fresh debate over expanding Medicaid, but we also have a decade's worth of, of, of negative comments about him, about the idea. And this litigation filed just Friday seeking an extension for his version of a program that would tie work and academic requirements to adding new Georgians to the Medicaid rules. What what odds do you give for a full on or or, or Arkansas style expansion happening in Georgia? Do you think this is something the governor would ever sign on to? In terms of the odds, you know, I'm not a very good a prognosticator, but if I were, I I would say that I don't think the odds are very good. Um, I'm a communications guy um, by trade, I guess, and given that not many Republicans were willing to go on the record for the recent AJC article about me- Medicaid expansion kind of tells me that it may not be as as strongly supported among the rank and file as some may believe. But look, I'm not in the legislature and I don't um, spend my days down there. So there's folks that know that better than I do. I think the interesting piece for me is the argument that many Republicans would vote for Medicaid expansion in return for repeal or reform of the CON laws. Um, And my response to that has been that I don't think many people understand or care about uh, CON laws amongst the general voting populace. So explaining to them why you would take a hard vote, (laughs) right? Why you would take a hard vote on expansion um, in exchange for this um, very archaic, um, very complicated healthcare regulatory um, framework is is a tough sell, in my opinion. But look, they may find the votes, um, whether it's with Democrats or moderate Republicans, but um, I would put the odds pretty low. 
Well, Cody, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Just ahead, two more defendants in the Fulton County election conspiracy case are asking the judge to have Fonnie Willis removed from the case. We'll explain their motions coming up. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This podcast is part of the mission of us here at the AJC to be the most essential and engaging source of news for the people of Atlanta, Georgia, and the South. Stay up to date every day on breaking news, in-depth investigations, politics, sports, entertainment, food, dining, and so much more by becoming a subscriber to the AJC. Go to AJC.com start for a special offer and unlock hundreds of original articles published daily at AJC.com in the new AJC mobile app. Plus, you'll have access to our news alerts, AJC films and videos, newsletters, podcasts, and so much more. That's AJC.com slash start. I'm Greg Lustin here live in the studio with Bill Nygut and Patricia Murphy. Guys, before we dive in to the latest on the Fulton County election interference trial, I want to go back to something that Cody Hall, who is uh, Brian Kemp's top, Governor Kemp's, one of his top advisors said about Medicaid expansion, because he he put the odds as fairly dim uh, for its, uh, its chances of passing this legislative session. But, but Patricia, something else he said was he was reading into the fact that very few lawmakers were willing to go on the record in a recent article that our colleague, uh, Michelle Brookman, wrote in the AJC. And it, it, she, she interviewed maybe more than a dozen of rank and file and state Republican legislative leaders. And very few of them were outright saying, hey, I want to do this. A lot of them were looking for cover, either from House Speaker, Lieutenant Governor, or Governor Kemp. They're not, probably not going to get it from Governor Kemp. They might get it from the other two. But it does speak to how complex this issue is and how few people know what certificate of need programs are. Well, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, Cody makes his living reading between the lines on stories like this. He knows how to take the temperature, not just of Governor Kemp, but of uh, the caucuses down at the Capitol. Where's the support? Where are the votes? And their question is also, where is the support coming from? So these are not lawmakers who want to get crosswise with Governor Kemp. They certainly don't want to get crosswise with their leaders unless they have a very good reason to do so. And we have not gotten clear signals from either um, Speaker John Burns or Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones that they want this. They, we have gotten sort of a cracked door. Um, well, maybe someday. Let's, let's talk about some other things to combine it with. So you could envision a package coming together, but you cannot underscore how complicated not just the policy of this is, which is like, which is like calculus on Mars, um, it you, the politics are even more complicated. And we're almost halfway through the session. We're about yeah. halfway through the session right now. You know, I was interested. Cody Hall, even as a young guy in politics, has always been one of the really talented communications uh, people in, uh, in in Republican circles in Georgia. And and I always appreciate the fact that you can you can ask Cody tough questions, and he understands that that's the job. I do think. Uh, Part of the spin, though, on the immigration aspect of this is to say that voters are going to look for 
adults in the room who will solve the you know the real issues at the border at a time when there is a proposal uh, coming out of the Senate that could solve many of those problems that Republicans now appear to be rejecting it is hard to square right now at yeah. this moment. <laughs> yeah, especially when there's been an action forever, it seems like, on the border. And it's easy for outside politicians. We hear it from Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire. Just throw them all out. Bring, bring in a whole new cast of characters in Washington to get deals done. Uh, but it is easier for, for Republicans and Democrats, frankly, here in Georgia, who aren't serving in Congress to say, hey, get something done. And I, I just got a text this morning from a Democratic operative who said how much this reminds him of the Saxby Chambliss days. Yeah. And Absolutely. Saxby Chambliss, the, of course, the longtime the, veteran Republican senator from Georgia, was trying to strike a deal. In the Gang of Eight in 2008, and they tried to strike a deal. And when Saxby Chambliss, as you know, went to the state Republican convention. He was booed off the stage for wanting to work with Democrats to solve the immigration mess. He wasn't the first and won't be the last Republican at the Georgia GOP to get booed off the stage either. Uh, no, and no <laughs> no Republican ever lost an election for failing to pass immigration reform. <laughs> yeah. um, but something else Cody said that I really agree with, um, as much as Congress cannot get its business done, that's a fact, and we all know it, and that's why Congress's approval rating has been b- below 20% for the last 20 years. Um, I do think that President Biden has particular exposure on this issue because it's about more than imp- immigration. It's about competence. It's about looking at those videos every day on the news and seeing what looks like a very disorganized, um, uncontrolled um, unknowable destination for all of these migrants who are coming in and claiming asylum. Border Patrol agents are obligated to accept them when they say that they want to seek asylum. Um, they are not running from Border Patrol. They are running to Border Patrol. It's a very different dynamic mm-hmm. than what we sort of used to see um, on the news. And it's a, it's a very complicated issue, but it's the president who people ultimately want to see solve this problem. And Bill, the strange thing about what's happening, too, is you have Republican negotiators in the U.S. Senate who negotiated a compromise deal now saying they don't even know if they'll vote for what they're negotiating. Yeah, that's right. Because you've got such pushback from Donald Trump and his allies. Yes, but I I think you can't overemphasize what Patricia is saying. President Biden did have earlier opportunities to really look at the border and try to find solutions. And one of the problems he's had from the start is the progressive flank of his party does not want to see really tough border security measures. They're more concerned about how, you know, whether or not we're going to have um, uh, more uh, uh, laws that help immigrants uh, transition into this country in a positive uh, way. I think that's uh, Mm -hmm. fair to say. Yeah, we're going to see some test votes in Congress this week. Uh, and we could see a number of Democrats as well as Republicans not voting on that bill uh, for, for reasons that you just mentioned, uh, Bill. Uh, let's shift gears real quick. We now have more defendants in the election interference case filing motions seeking to remove D.A. Fonnie Willis from the case. It started with lawyer from Michael Roman asking a judge to disqualify this D.A. for engaging what she claims is an improper relationship with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor. Now he's been joined by Trump by former Georgia GOP chair David Schaefer, and by Kathy Latham, who's the former chair of the Coffee County GOP, Patricia. So we're still seeing these motions. We might see even more. Um, but th- th- it is all coming to a head next week where we're going to have oral arguments before Judge McAfee over these motions. Yes, and I think that this uh, this process needs to get behind 
Fonnie Willis and uh, the other members of her team trying to prosecute Donald Trump. This has been out there festering for weeks and weeks and picking up so much steam, partially because Willis did not ever respond to these until very recently uh, when she and Nathan Wade confirmed that there had been um, a romantic relationship and and per- perhaps still is, I actually don't know. Um, but uh, this has been out there for so long. The more we hear from legal experts, the more legal experts are saying, look, this has nothing to do with Donald Trump, with what he's accused of, nor even the prosecution so far. Um, But we need to get this out in the open. I do think that Judge McAfee has really equipped himself well to have the trust of the general public as they watch this, and it will be on TV, Mm -hmm. which is incredible. Um, I think that up to this point, he has seemed so even-handed that any result after this is going to feel pretty uh, well-reasoned and legitimate. And so, but they've got to get past this one and, way or another. And and Bill, as Patricia mentioned, we have seen a response from Fonnie Willis, not only saying that acknowledging there was a personal relationship, but also saying there was no financial stake in the game for, for Fonnie Willis. Yeah, absolutely. But very, very quickly, um, Schaefer and Latham have picked up on something that Steve Sato on behalf of Trump entered into this uh, whole picture as well, claiming that remarks that Fonnie Willis made at Big Bethel AME Church, mm-hmm. in which she said she was a victim of racism, uh, suggest that she is trying to infect the jury pool uh, by calling this all racism uh, directed at her. And they've added that to their motion, which is a whole different wrinkle. Yeah, we'll have a lot more coverage on that, of course, in the time to come. Before we go, I want to talk about the final tribute for State Representative Richard Smith, the Columbus Republican who died last week. His funeral was held in Columbus yesterday, and it was such a t- touching ceremony that celebrated his impact on the state and, of course, his community in West Georgia. Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 a.m. on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or you can follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Wednesday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash 
unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.